If you would turn in your Bibles again to the first chapter of John's Gospel, I want to kind of speak to you for a moment because I was actually asked a question last Sunday as, as someone was leaving and you know, I want to make really, really clear, there are a lot of very, very, very bright, amazingly intelligent, extremely dedicated scientists all over the world uh, that don't believe in God. And it's not that they're not studying hard, and it's not that their science is uh, immensely incorrect, but there is a general conclusion, there is an assumption that is made that because there is no God, that they're looking for answers to how we got here and specifically to the scientific things that we see, their basic premise is there is no God, so we need to look at the universe uh, apart from that being a possible explanation. And so you have to look at billions of years. You have to look at long periods of time, random chance processes. You have to look at how chemicals can possibly evolve into life forms. You must be looking there if your assumption is there is no God. And so I want to make very clear I'm not being dismissive, nor am I trying to insult anyone's intelligence because there are people far more intelligent than I that have dedicated their life to trying to disprove God. Here's the problem. They haven't done it. They haven't done it. It's that simple. And to this day, while there is immense amounts of science done on both sides of the equation, the theory of evolution is exactly that. It is a theory. It is not a proven fact. On a like-type plane, the theory of creationism is exactly that because it is also a theory, and here's why I say that that way. For anything to be proven, we look at it in our world in this day and time, in essence, through what most of us know as the scientific method. Francis Bacon, when he invented that particular methodology, he came up with a handful of things, and in order for something to be proven empirically, it has to always be true. You have to come up with a hypothesis, some theory that you think is, is reasonable. You then begin to test that theory over long periods of time. That testing must be repeatable, and it must be verifiable in its results. So for anything to be proven scientifically, you have to put it to an experiment, and then you have to do that experiment again, and you need to come up with the same conclusion each time for it to be proven to be a fact. You cannot do that with something that we cannot see, and there is no longer any way for us to test it scientifically. So whether you're talking about the creation or whether you're talking about the Big Bang, nobody alive today can test that. All of those things happened in the past. And so we are dealing theoretically with an explanation that provides us with the best way to look at the facts as we see them today. And so when we talk about these things that have to touch on creation, creation science versus evolution. We are always looking at everything through what theory explains the facts that we see in the most clear and concise way. In other words, which is most correct? There's a principle that we use in science called Occam's razor that, thing, that basically states that the simplest answer, the one with the least problems, that provides us with the least subsequent uh, questions that must be asked based on our conclusions is also the most likely. And so I'm trying to help you understand that when we talk about these things, there's a reason to talk about them from a biblical perspective because we can look at the world 
through the lens of Scripture and say, is this reasonable? You're going to find out that our faith not only is very reasonable, but it's actually the best answer for how we got here. And so as we turn our attention, we're going to pick up in verse 4 here in John chapter 1 and a study that I've entitled Light and Life. Would you pray with me? Father, we are again grateful that we get to come and study your word. Lord, this is your word. These are not my words, they're yours. And Jesus, we believe uh, as Christians that your word is true and that you have not deceived us. You're certainly not a liar. And so you have spoken truth to us. The first three verses of this chapter remind us that in the beginning uh, you were there and you created everything and there is nothing that has been created that you didn't create and that you created it for yourself. And so we take your word on that. And we ask now that as we study these passages, God, that you would speak to us from heaven, help us to know truth, that truth would set us free. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John is now going to go on, and he's going to continue with this whole premise that there is a creator God, and that creator God in verses 1 through 3, is known as the word. He uses the Greek term logos, that word meaning all information, information systems, everything that can be known. It is much deeper than that, but let's suffice to say that whenever something is organized, whenever anything is designed, we can assume that there was a designer who designed it. Because matter itself, chemicals themselves, Things that make up the universe physically do not store information and they cannot transmit information without there being an impartation of both energy and information to a system. So when something has information, we have to assume that somebody put the information there. No matter how long you give dirt to sit around, it's not going to get more organized. It isn't going to turn into anything. It's going to sit there as dirt unless you add information and energy to it. And so the basic premise now goes on to state some additional things that help us understand the world that we're in. For in him, circle those hymns, those his those personal pronouns that help us know who this is that's being spoken about. In this case, the in him is the first three verses, the one who is known as the word. In him, the word was life. And the life was the light of men. And when you look at the word life, you have to remember that all kinds of things are made up the same basic biologic uh, chemicals. Those things, in order for them to do anything, have to have a substance that is non-material. We call it information. We call it a mind. We call it a soul. We call it psyche. We call it a spirit. There's additional things that are necessary for life to be life. No matter how long you sit around and you just put a bunch of chemicals together, they will not get organized, nor will they turn into life itself. That is an impossibility. And so here it says, the word, the logos, was life. And the life was the light of men. In other words, it's illuminating things so that we can see it. That's the basic premise of Romans chapter 1. So as Paul writes to the church at Rome, he says that the things that are made, you can actually know the creator by looking at the creation. 
And in fact, what happens is when people view the creation, they come to one of two conclusions. There is either a creator that created everything, or these things happen to come about by random chance processes with billions of years of time. And so when you look at things that are created, your body is one of those amazing things that you can look at. We know so much about the human body, and yet we know so very little about the human body, and especially about the information that is stored within the human DNA that makes you you. By the way, you are absolutely unique. There's not another you on this planet. You're the only one that is you. And and so when we look at these things, how did all that information get there? Was it random, or was it put there by in him who was the word, who is also life, and that life is the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You see, here's the choice for all humanity. Jesus is going to go on to tell us this. You see, the reason that people don't come to faith in Christ isn't because there isn't evidence that he's, he is here. The reason that people don't come to faith in Christ isn't because God's invisible. He hasn't spoken. The reason that people don't come to faith in Christ is the conclusion has to be drawn that there is either a creator that knows me, created me, and made me, and wants to have a relationship with me, or there's not. And consequently, people who take the premise that there is a God and say, no, there isn't, then they love darkness. They just simply love darkness. And so your Bible says, That people who walk in darkness do so not because there isn't evidence of light, but because they choose the darkness over the light. Notice how this continues and is rationalized before us here in these verses. And there was a man sent from God. And so, always interesting, we need to make sure that we mark who we're talking about here. There's a man who was sent from God. It doesn't say that that is God sent from God. That would be Jesus. That would be Logos, whose name was John. And in this case, it's not the author of this book. It's not John who is the apostle. This is none other than John the Baptist, the one about whom Isaiah 40 prophesies. And this man came as a witness, to bear witness of the light. So he's saying, whoever the light is, and in this case, we know that the light, the life, is Logos. We're going to meet who he actually is definitively in verse 14. Because the word is going to become flesh and dwell among us. We know that this is Jesus. This man came to bear witness, witness of the light, that all through him might believe. You see, there's a purpose for the witness of John. There's a purpose for the witness of the light. There's a purpose for the witness of science. There is a purpose for all of Scripture, and that is so that we might believe. God is interested in convincing us to believe. He wants us to know him. And he's given us enough information about himself so that we can believe. You see, when people look at things that are made, they're supposed to look at it and go, wow, that is awfully complex. There's a tremendous amount of structure. There's amazing order in that. It doesn't appear to be random at all. And as I said last time, If you look at anything and you see a design, you're going to automatically believe that there is a designer unless there's something wrong with your logic. You come to that conclusion. Randomness doesn't produce intricate systems. 
that are interdependent upon one another, that can self-diagnose problems, that can heal themselves, and then replicate the whole thing endlessly. Most of you, when you got up this morning, I can tell you a few things you didn't do. You didn't wake up, sit up in your bed and go, lungs, breathe. You did not get up and go, man, I really need to get my heart motivated here. You did not get up and all of a sudden, you know, remind your own brain to begin thinking. Every single system in your body is completely interdependent one upon the other and all of them communicate one with each other. Your liver doesn't have to ask your heart what to pull out of that blood that's being pumped through there. It automatically knows the difference between the toxins and the poisons and that which gets filtered through it, which is your blood. Ever thought about these kind of things? I know I'm weird, but... When you think about those kind of things, you have to go, how does that happen? You're supposed to think about it. And the reason you're supposed to think about it is when you begin to think about it and you think of, hmm, design, designer, random, and lots of time. You're supposed to go, you know, this one sounds like it's a little more logical to me. This man came to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. God's not invisible. God is not invisible. He's visible in the things that are made. That's what Romans 1 says. Read it. When you look at that chapter, you go, oh, Now I get it. And he was in the world. The world was, notice this again, he repeats it. The world was made through him. You were made through him. We were made through him. The lumber that's on the pew ends that you're sitting on was made through him. The fibers in the fabric that make up the cushion that you sit on Made through him. For it says in verses 1 through 3, nothing was made that was made that wasn't made by him and for him. In other words, all space, all time, all matter, all energy, and all information. Everything that is has a cause. The laws of physics clearly state if something is, it must have a cause that is greater than itself. It's a basic law of physics. You can't have something that comes from something that is anything that is as great as the thing that produced it. And likewise, if there's something that is, it had to have a cause that is greater than itself. The laws of conservation of mass and energy says that no matter can be destroyed or be created, and likewise, no energy. There's an equivalence of those two things. And so the world, as we know it, has so much order in it, the thing that we ought to be asking ourselves is how did all that order get there? Why don't you have to tell your lungs to breathe? How did all that programming get into your individual cells? How did a single sperm and a single egg turn into you? And how did all that information that came from those two pieces of genetic material all of a sudden split with your chromosomes, all 23 of them being left-handed, and turn into you? 
Where did those amino acids, proteins, and enzymes come from? That they got organized and turned into systems. Biotic machines inside of every cell that rotate a hundred times a second, spitting out three electrons each time, and yet you don't disappear, even though you turn over your entire body weight every single 24 hours. There's some stuff about you that you ought to look at, and you go, huh? Where did that come from? The world didn't know him. Not because they couldn't see him. Now notice what it says, just in case you're wondering who this is, because we're being set up here by the Lord to understand exactly who the Creator is. He came to His own. Who did Jesus come to? His own, the Jewish people. What did they do? They rejected Him. So much so that it boiled down to the crucifixion scene there at the trial of Jesus as they're asking for Barabbas. We don't want this man to rule over us. Give us Barabbas. But his own didn't receive him. But as many as received him, now I want you to see the wonderful universal nature of the gospel. You see, because the whosoever's that will, (laughs) those are the elect of God. Anyone who will believe on his name will be saved. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you believe in his name, you will be saved. It's not about church. It's not about religion. It isn't about who you know. It's not about what you know. It, It is about you knowing the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords personally, and inviting him into your life. It's receiving and believing. It's a very simple thing. It's not complex. But as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. Notice he he says, look, in case you missed it, and to those who believe on his name. Notice it doesn't say, and and to those who understand the major doctrines of faith. To those who have gone to Bible college. To those who spent at least five years in a Bible teaching church. Oh, it just simply says, to those who believe in his name. And of course his name is who Jesus is. Because we're going to be told that he is going to become flesh and dwell among us. So we know this is Christ. Who were born not of blood. In other words, it's not the fact that you're a human being. Nor the will of flesh. It isn't just your willpower. You can't just think it. There's an element of faith. Nor the will of man. It's not a cumulative thing to where we just make it so pervasive that You know, all humankind is going to get there, but of God. In other words, God created you uniquely, purposefully, and willfully so that you could know him, and he's simply asking you to believe that he is. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, in essence, encapsulated in some questions that we should ask ourselves. And so here we see that he is first the logos, and he now is the light and the life. In other words, he is the light of the world that we're going to meet in chapter 8. But he's really telling us ahead of time, he says, look, I did these things. I I want you to look at who you are. I want you to look at what you are. I want you to look at the world that you're in. I want you to see things from the perspective that if you will just examine the evidence that's before you, you're going to come to the conclusion that you have meaning and purpose. I did something unique in creating humankind. I want you to see this. 
when you ask yourself, what are the essentials for human life? Uh, here, here's four of them, and there are probably a couple of others you can throw in, but these are the main ones. The essential for human life are this, light. If there were no light in this world, we would all be dead in a very short period of time. And if there were no light on this planet, we would have no plants. Those plants would not feed those animals. So whether you're a vegan or whether you're a carnivore or you're an omnivore, you eat everything or you eat only meat or you eat only vegetables. If there's no light, you have no food. So the fourth thing here, you won't have if there's no light. Furthermore, if you don't get enough sunlight, medically proven, we now know this, that eventually your body begins to react to that, increasing the incidence of suicide, causing depression, all kinds of things. It's a reason that when you go sit on the beach, you feel so great. Your body is producing vitamin D, you're getting melatonin going, and you're like feeling awesome. We actually need light. It's essential to our bodies. Now, too much of it, that's a different story. So don't go lather yourself up with grease and lay on the sand too long and say, I told you to do it. <laughs> but you need light. You also need air. That's why I said, you know, none of you tell your lungs, you know, come on, breathe, man. You need air. And you very specifically need exactly the atmosphere of this particular little planet. The reason you can't live on the moon is there's no oxygen there. There's no nitrogen there. There's none of those things that exist in our Earth's atmosphere in great amounts sufficient to take care of all of us. You ever wondered who figured out the exact right amount of oxygen and nitrogen that we need to survive and then managed to make it stick around this planet accidentally? So that we'd have just the right amount of it so that every breath you take... Your lungs, those little wonderful things that sit in the middle of your chest that exchange, take your red blood cells in and then oxygenate them and send that oxygen out to the rest of the cells so that your whole body becomes oxygenated. You don't think about that, but you've got to have air. I can prove it to you. Hold your breath. Some of you are going to make it a couple of minutes. Some of you are going to fall on the floor. And, and in a little while, you're all going to be laying over on the ground because you have to have it. Water, so important to you because you're about 74 to 86% of it, depending on your body type, body weight. But you're a whole bunch of water. A little tiny molecule, H2O. A couple of hydrogen atoms, one oxygen atom. Pretty simple. And yet your body is made out of mostly water. You have to have it. Is that accidental? Every cell in your body has to have that. And yet you don't wander around and go, man, I hope I get enough water today. That's why your doctor's going to tell you to make sure you're drinking plenty of water, by the way. Food. Now, some of you, well, let's just say some of us, could last longer than others. Because we're storing a little nutrition in what we like to call fat. Yeah, it's just stored up energy. That's all it is. But you have to take in food. Matter of fact, you have to take in about 1,500 calories a day just to provide for the function of your body. And eventually that catches up with you. If you don't have that, if you don't have it stored and you can't burn it, or if you don't take enough in, eventually you will die. 
Here's the crazy thing. You know what happens when you start to starve to death? Your body will consume everything except your brain. How does your brain know to tell all the rest of the systems, look, I'm, gonna, I'm turning you off right now, and could we consume, you know, like that fat around your midsection first? It's called your DNA. So you need these things. They're unique to you. They're unique to us as humankind. They're unique to every single human being. Here's the crazy thing. They're the same essentials for spiritual life. They're the exact same essentials. Jesus says he's every last one of these things. We're going to see them as we go through the Gospel of John. He is the light of the world. He's the one that imparts light into this world, both physically and spiritually. He's also the breath of life, breathed into you, and we'll get to this in our study in Genesis on Sunday nights. Breathed into man and man alone is a very unique and wonderful thing. It is an eternal life-giving spirit. That's why mankind is different than all animals. And by the way, that's what God's word says. That's not just me hating on cats. Specifically. Even though I have two of them. No, God breathed into us and made us in his image. He's actually given us a spirit. And here's the thing that's crazy about that. That means every last person, whether they believe in Jesus or not, is eternal. The only question is, where are you going to spend eternity? Are you going to spend it with God or without God? Because he made you eternal. When he breathed the spirit of life into us, it's a different spirit than just consciousness, which allows you to think, which allows you to have thoughts in essence, allows you to have consciousness, allows you to do things like think altruistically. In other words, think of good things versus bad things. He is that. He's the very air that we breathe on top of that. He's the water. He's the water of life. He's the one that nourishes our soul. He's the food. He's the bread of life. You see, when Jesus says, I am the life, he's going way deeper than some ethereal thought. He's actually talking about all you are physically, all you are mentally, and all you are spiritually, the three component parts of who you are as a person. And oddly enough, we now know, because medical science has advanced far enough, that the thoughts that you have, your mind in essence, is in fact non-material. We don't know where it's stored. It's not imprinted on chemicals. It's not found in cells. It just simply is. God says he breathed that into us. And so people are wandering around going, why? I wonder where those thoughts are stored. It's stored in the soul that God gave you. He imparted that life to you. You see, in that sense, Jesus is in fact the life giver. Exactly as this passage says. He's the one that's done those things. He's made you the way you are. When you think on this, it, you know, some of us are a little more concerned about these things than others, I'm sure. But you know, when I look at my own life, have you ever wondered where thoughts go when you're not thinking them? Anybody else do that? I know I'm weird. Have you ever wondered where those thoughts are stored? 
Like there's some little bank in there somewhere? Can I give you the answer? We don't know. Nobody knows. It's not like you can like pull out, because most of us want a little more hard drive, hard drive space, amen? In my case, I also want some more RAM. But we don't know. All we know is that the life giver imparted life to us and he imparted that life in both the natural way and the spiritual way. He said, I created you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made and I've actually given you the capacity to be a conscious, living, breathing person. And the great thing is he also gave you a spirit where you can meet with him. So you are body, mind slash soul, consciousness, and spirit. Jesus says, I gave you those things. And when you think of it, when you go beyond that physical realm, when when you start to think about, well, how does all that information get transmitted and stored and all of those kind of things, it's mind-boggling. I was talking with a guy after after first service, and again, he's actually a scientist. And we were were having this great conversation. He's going, yeah, he's like, I don't, you know, the storage of the information is the thing that we can't get past scientifically. I said, yeah, that's exactly right. And I don't think we ever will. We were talking about the human genome, which has now been mapped. And so the, the weird thing about that is this. When you think about who you are, you're also different than a zebra. You're also different than a frog and a blue-green algae, and a baboon, a parrot. You see every last bit of that. So people have always asked this question, why would life be diverse? You know, by random chance processes, it wouldn't. Because the theory of evolution is built on, in essence, that which has the best chance of survival survives. So how many blue-green algae do you think are going to be left after a while? I think they'd all still be here. There wouldn't be anything else because they're a perfect machine. So why would they turn into anything else? Unless God had a plan that includes him giving us life. You look at the information that's stored in you. Just in your DNA alone, you have the same amount of information. If you were to store it on computer hard drives, It's about 150 trillion gigabytes of information in the human DNA. 150 trillion gigabytes of information. There's only about 15 terabytes, which is 100 billion times less in the Library of Congress. That's to make up you. That's the information stored in your cells so that you'll have a liver and a kid, couple of kidneys, so that you'll have a heart and blood vessels, so that you'll have a mind, neural synapses, so that you'll have all kinds of nerves that have varying degrees and capacities of receiving stimuli from the outside world. When you think about who you are, you ought to be asking yourself the question, how did all that information get there? Your Bible says the one who is Logos imparted life to you. He actually made you the way you are. He's created you in his own image. He made you fearfully 
and wonderfully made. He was then and is now the life that's been breathed into us. And he's illuminated that by being also the light. He says, look, I'm trying to tell you it's me. I'm the light. I'm the source of all this. And so he shines a light on things. When we say I'm shining a light on a particular subject, what we're really saying is we're illuminating that subject. Somebody asked me, well, what about the speed of light? Well, I could illuminate it by saying it's 186,276 miles per second. I'm illuminating that subject. Now imagine that Jesus illuminates everything that is. He tells you everything that there is to know about everything. He may not tell you everything, but he tells you what you need to know about things so that you see it correctly. He illuminates the world that you walk in. He also has empowered the world that you walk in by imparting life to you and life to us so that we can think correctly. And so when we think of him as being logos, and we think of him as being light, and we think of him as being life, he literally is those things. He's the one that did it. He's the answer to those very deep questions that we still can't answer scientifically. Spiritually speaking, it goes even deeper. He's the source of your spiritual life. He's the source of your physical life. He's the power to, to take that darkness that may be overwhelming you and shed light on it so you can see it the way it, the way it actually is. God wants you to see correctly in this world. So he sent the light into the world so that you could see what's going on. Illuminate the things that might give you a problem. You, you would think that people who were in darkness would run to the light. But as Jesus will go on to say, men love darkness. For those of you that have ever been caving at all, I'll tell you, there's one thing that will panic a person inside of a cave quicker than anything else, and that's if you lose your light source. It is like freakish beyond freakish because if you're really inside of a deep cavern, you can't see your hand in front of your face. But all you need is a little tiny bit of light to be able to see. And Jesus basically says to us, look, I'm going to illuminate your world so that you don't walk in darkness so that you can walk in light. And I'll never run out of light. I'll never stop shining. I'm never going to get to that place to where you're going to be uh, unfortunately walking in darkness again. You see, darkness was our previous condition. But now that we know him, we no longer walk in that. And so it is through that continual outflow, his unlimited divine energy in every way, both physically, spiritually, uh, what we know in our minds. He is the very thing that Colossians chapter 1 declares to us. He upholds all of it by his power. He's the one that's holding the universe together. He's the one that imparted all that information to your entire body through your DNA. He's the one that keeps the stars where they belong. He, he's the one that allows us to exist on this one little tiny planet that thus far we've been staring out into space now uh, for the better part of 60 years, deep field space exploration through telescopes, Hubble and otherwise. We haven't found a single habitable planet. Isn't that kind of weird to you? 
If it was all that easy for something to blow up and become something very organized and highly specialized like our planet, you would think there'd be more of the Earths around. Amen? There isn't. Our closest neighbors, Venus and Mars, you freeze to death on one, you burn to death on the other. Take your pick. Now the light shined in our universe. Then he shined on a very specific place with a very specific people that he created in his own image. Don't let anybody tell you differently. We may not be able to explain everything, but there's enough explanation here that you start asking the right questions. And pretty soon you realize there's no explanation to those questions save there is a Savior that you were created in his image and he loves you and has imparted life to you and he wants to know you personally. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and we'll pray. I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, and if you're here and you know the Lord, would you begin to pray? Just for anybody who doesn't. You know, sometimes these little triggers in our mind help us to understand, wow, I'm not an accident. If you're here today, there's something I can tell you for sure. You're not an accident. Whether your parents planned you or not, a Savior who loves you planned you. Whether you came into this world in a family that's got it all together or one that's completely not together, there's a Savior who died on Calvary's cross to prove to you that he loves you. And he's the one that fabricated your very existence before the beginning of time, so much so that he knew your days before there were yet any. That's what scripture says. That about you, there's no mystery. He loves you in spite of who you are, even today. If you were someplace in the midst of sin this morning and you came in today, the Savior says to you, I love you and I want to know you. And so as we bow our heads, close our eyes, please. Christians, please be praying. If you're here today and, and you don't know the Creator, you don't know the Savior, you don't know the Logos, you don't know the life, you don't know the light, you don't know the one who loves you, but you want to before you leave today. Just slip your hand up. I want to pray with you right where you're at. And you can receive Christ to see that hand. Praise the Lord. Just lift your hand up so I can see it, please. I see that hand as well. And that hand as well. And that hand. And that hand. Is there anyone else? It's a simple thing. Jesus loves you. And he wants to know you personally and wants you to know him personally. He wants to have a relationship with you. Just slip your hand up. Anyone at all. See that hand. Praise God. And that one as well. I see that hand too. Just slip your hand up. I want to pray with you. Oh, see that one as well. Hallelujah. And that one and that one. Hands up all over the sanctuary. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You were too good to us. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? I'm going to lead you in a short prayer in just a moment. Just keep them up so I can see them. Not to embarrass you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Those that have raised your hands... Go ahead and put your hands down. If you would just simply repeat uh, with me this very simple prayer. And remember, I can't pray it for you. You have to pray it. You have to invite Jesus into your own life personally. But just pray it, mean it from your heart. 
Heavenly Father, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I recognize that you created me for a purpose and that you love me. And I want to know you. And so I'm inviting you into my life to be my Savior and my Lord. I'm asking you to put your Holy Spirit in me and to write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in my life today. Help me to walk with you for the rest of my life. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.